Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin, the owner of Just World Books. It is now almost exactly eight years since the United States invaded Iraq, with the main reason for that invasion being President Bush's claims that Saddam Hussein had a very advanced program to develop WMDs. But as you will recall, soon after the invasion, it became clear that there were neither any active WMDs in Iraq, nor even a continuing WMD development program. And almost immediately, President Bush tried to change the rationale for the invasion to the idea that the primary American goal in Iraq had been to develop democracy. One of the best informed observers of the years-long democratization effort that followed has been Rydar Visser, a Dutch-Norwegian historian who publishes a website called historiae.org. Last November I was proud that Just World Books published a really important book that Visser had compiled from the best of his writings on the Iraqi transition. It's titled A Responsible End. The United States and the Iraqi Transition 2005-2010. through 2010. On March 12th, I was glad to catch up with Visser by phone. I asked him if he'd revised the judgment he penned in his book last November, that the U.S. attempt to build a functioning democracy in Iraq had been a failure. He told me he had not revised that judgment. Indeed, at one point he said that both the Bush administration and the Obama administration had essentially been playing Iran's game inside Iraq. I also asked Visser about the relationship between the current wave of pro-democracy movements that's been sweeping through the Arab world, known as the Arab Spring, and the earlier American democratization project in Iraq. He said bluntly that Iraq is not seen as a model today. I am now happy to make available for listeners the whole of my 20-minute discussion with Raida Visser. Good morning, Raida. It's good to have you with me here on the phone. Um, you're in Oslo and I'm in Virginia. So I've been reading your blog recently and um, you've been writing about the Strategic Policy Council, which was a, a feature in your book, A Responsible End, The United States and the Iraqi Transition 2005 through 2010. In a sense, Back in November, that was kind of the device that was used to um, ensure the support of Iyad Alawi for the Maliki government. But right now, um, in early March, that mechanism seems to have failed, or it, maybe you could uh, describe to me what exactly has happened with, with, the, with the Strategic Policy Council. Sure. Uh, back in November, uh, the Strategic Policy Council was trumpeted by the Obama administration as the as the centerpiece of of the Iraqi government formation process. It was uh, hailed as the, as proof that there would be inclusion of um, all uh, winning parties in the next government, and in particular, that the party that emerged um, on top in terms of number of deputies, Iraqiya, which is secular and to some extent Sunni-backed, would be included. And the way it was arranged was that the Strategic Policy Council was framed as some sort of a face-saving mechanism for the leader of Iraqiya, Ayad Alawi, uh, who had prime ministerial ambitions but eventually gave in and 
Nuri al-Maliki uh, emerged as the, the um, as prime minister for, for the second time. So this policy council essentially at the time was portrayed as something that would give Alawi not only a consolation prize, but really some sort of a real influence in terms of checks on the powers of the prime ministers and so on. In my book, I was extremely critical of the council because I indicated I thought it would go nowhere. There would be uh, there would be strong criticism against it from the other parties. The, the Shiite-dominated alliance, in particular, would not be be happy to see it come into being. And I think what we've seen in the in the four months between November and now is that the, the 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 people around Maliki really have tried to dilute the the whole uh council idea by making it more of a think tank than a, a real institution of influence in in government so in the end the draft law of the council was giving the council such a weak role that Alawi gave up essentially and he's now saying he's no longer a candidate to um, to head that council, and because the council was basically created for Alawi personally, it's now very unlikely that it will go anywhere. And uh, in any case, it will not be anything more than than uh, a think tank. So going back to to what the Obama administration was saying in November 2010. The, the, essentially, the, the cornerstone of this power-sharing agreement does not exist anymore. I guess their approach, the Obama administration's approach throughout the government formation process had been that they wanted to have a sort of a wall-to-wall government in Baghdad that would um, include all four of the major blocs. Um, do you think that was a good idea? I don't think it was a good idea because it provided for what is essentially a repeat of the of the uh, government formula we had between 2005 and 2010, which was dysfunctional in the extreme. And the reason it was dysfunctional is the same reason that the next government will be dysfunctional, and that has to do with the criteria for, uh, for uh, building the government. Uh, essentially, each of the parties are allotted quotas uh, where they can uh, promote their own party cronies as ministers. So this is a a government for politicians rather than a government uh, put together to serve the people. It's it's not a technocratic government at all. It's it's the logical opposite of a technocratic uh, government, actually. So, so it actually, it's um, like just a way of divvying up the patronage and the booty of government rather than figuring out a way to solve the people's problems. Exactly. Divvying it up is, uh, is a very good term. It's actually how the, the, the Iraqis talk about power sharing in, in Arabic is a lot more honest than, than how we talk about it in English. They say takasum, which means the mutual uh, divvying, divvying up of spoils. Uh, whereas we talk about power sharing, which, which sounds somehow progressive uh, and, and potentially beneficial to the whole country. But this is really a government that is being uh, divvied up for the benefit of the parties that take part in it. Uh, and a second uh, consequence of, of forming government this way is, of course, that there's hardly any 
anyone left in Parliament that can act in in our an opposition role. So uh, because everyone, all the parties, one way or another, has some sort of stake in the government, which is potentially unhealthy in that you get a big gap between grievances of the people, as articulated um, in the Iraqi street, and, and government, because parliament is not there as an effective mediator of, of popular demands uh, and a check uh, on the executive power. So I guess you know what you're saying is there's no effective parliamentary opposition, and in a sense that links to this question of the effects of the Arab Spring, this you know amazing pro-democracy movement that we've seen in Egypt and Tunisia and Bahrain and several other Arab countries, and obviously those people are in those movements are trying to find ways to channel their grievances and, and get them heard by government through the parliamentary process, through reform of the parliamentary process. But in Iraq, um, we've had a few little glimmerings of, you know, the Arab Spring. But what happens? I mean, people go out and, and have a demonstration in Baghdad or in Kirkuk or whenever. Does that relate to the parliamentary process in any way? Well, it does to some extent. Uh, it's interesting to see how Maliki, the prime minister, has responded to these uh, growing demonstrations. First, we let's be clear about it. We, we're seeing demonstrations with... with uh, uh, masses in their hundreds and, and perhaps th uh, thousands, but, but, but not anywhere near tens of thousands or, or, or hundreds of thousands. So, so it's a, on a smaller scale than what we've been seeing in, in Egypt and Libya, for sure. But it, it does, uh, this m movement does have a, a certain momentum to it, uh, and it's interesting that Maliki at first dismissed it ent entirely, uh, saying Iraq was a perfect democracy, etc., um, and and that the and, and that the demonstrations that were planned were some constituted some sort of conspiracy with with Baathists and uh, Al Qaeda elements uh, responsible. But when the demonstrations uh, actually materialized, they were of such a scale that Maliki. Uh, changed his mind afterwards uh, and felt he had to take them seriously. And his response was basically to, to sack or to, 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 uh, to provide a, a hint to some of his fellow, some members of his own alliance who, were, who had uh, governor positions in various places in southern Iraq. And he told them basically to, 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 to go. Uh, and give up their uh, governor positions, and, and they've done that. So he has uh, changed his mind quite considerably about the, the, about these protests, and it's evident that he, he's mindful of them. The question is, I guess, uh, to what extent will, will changes in, in, in the governorates be, be sufficient? When will people start calling for his resignations rather than uh, for his resignation or, or that of his ministers rather than for the, of, of some of the, the local governors. So far, the, 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 the demands have been focused on the local level. Um, there is also uh, a demand that uh, there, there should be local elections at the sub-governorate level, which haven't been, uh, where there haven't been elections uh, at all 
uh, in the post-2003 period. What will be interesting to watch is whether these protests will galvanize into a truly national movement um, that would, uh, will start asking critical questions uh, about the Maliki government itself. So, so far, there's not, not that much sign of it. But, but you have this problem with, with the absence of an effective opposition in Parliament that will be able to, to mediate that sort of opposition. Uh, and the danger, of course, is that if, if popular um, unrest continues and, and is not resolved by the change of a couple of governors, then you can get a dangerous situation in which Parliament and government in particular is, is out of tune with the, the popular mood. Is there actually um, a, a risk of a return to complete social and political breakdown, such as we saw in 2006, 2007? Um, I, don't, I don't foresee that uh, in, the, in the near term. Uh, but but you, what you certainly could uh, imagine would be a return to, to, to more authoritarian uh, conditions Certainly, if, if these demonstra demonstrators start uh, attacking Maliki and his government, I'm not sure how they would react to that, if they would react to that in a mature and democratic manner or, or if they would do something uh, else and perhaps employ more uh, repressive policies against the, any such protests. Right. So we still have, what, around 50,000 U.S. troops in Iraq? Um, and I know in Washington people are saying, you know, well, maybe we're going to have to stay um, a long time after the end of the year, the end of this year, 2011, being the time designated in the Status of Forces Agreement, withdrawal agreement um, for the departure of all U.S. forces. So um, what is your expectation? I mean, you, you watch what's happening in Iraq very closely is, is there any chance that the uh, Iraqi politicians will actually ask the U.S. troops to stay on beyond uh, the end of 2011? Well, that's the elephant in the room in, in, in all the Washington thinking about the, the, the withdrawal. They, they assume that there will be eager Iraqis wanting the Americans to stay longer. Uh, but, but, uh, but the basis of that assumption... The empirical basis of that assumption is, seems to be extremely weak. They, they're now saying that uh, as soon as there is a defense minister, there will be someone they can work with who will, who will make this request for, 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 for the Americans to stay longer. But I'm not sure it will actually materialize. I'm not sure Iraqi leading politicians will be forthcoming with, with that request because the influence of, of nationalist ideals still quite strong in Iraq, whereas Washington tends to reduce this to a problem to to a problem related to the Saudists. It it seems clear that the unwillingness to to um, to let the American forces stay longer uh, runs far deeper and, and more and broader uh, in in Iraqi politics and popular opinion. So, so I'm not at all uh, convinced that the request for, for, for uh, a prolonged stay will, will be forthcoming at all. If that, if that fails to materialize, 
then basically there's nothing the United States can do about prolonging the um, status of forces agreement. Additionally, there, there is this expectation um, about the, the uh, State Department having some sort of uh, grand role uh, involving all sorts of enormous officers with, with large, uh, with, with enormous staff uh, and even infrastructure of their own and so forth. To me, as an historian, this brings back memories of of what happened uh, to the British in in Iraq during the during the time of the mandate. What eventually brought the British presence in Iraq to an end was were grievances related not to not to uh, combat troops, but to but to advisors and and air bases and that sort of thing. So this could happen again. There's a precedent for it. Interesting. I mean, all of these politicians, in essence, were brought to power um, by U.S. military power. And now they're saying that, you know, you're saying, and I obviously agree with you, that they, they, they seem to have a very strong nationalist motivation that is going to mean that they don't actually ask the, the U.S. to stay on. Maybe one or two of them may be tempted, but uh, yeah, I'm not seeing the the empirical basis for that either. Um, if you t- if you take a couple of steps back and look at, gosh, now we're in March, so we're eight years after the invasion of I- Iraq, and in your book, A Responsible End, you um, you gave a, a kind of a judgment about the U.S. attempt to build a democracy, a functioning democracy in Iraq, and you, you said it was a failure at that point back in November. I guess from my point of view as an American, um, I always had great doubts about the both the sincerity of the Bush administration people when they said you know, that they really went, went to Iraq to build democracy. And second, about the, their capability to do so as an occupying power. Um, it, it wasn't like Germany and Japan in 1945, where you had totally um, destroyed societies and, and um, the U.S. was able to kind of rebuild the socio-political system up from nothing not nothing, but from you know from a very fractured base in Germany and Japan in Iraq, you had a lot more um, a, a lot more existing surviving social and political capabilities um, that were capable of resisting u s social engineering political engineering, if you like. Was there anything actually that George Bush could have done to build a a more successful democracy in Iraq? Was there anything President Obama could do, could have done at, back at the beginning of his uh, his presidency to build a more robust democracy in Iraq? I don't know. I, I'm asking this question because I'm an American and I, and, I, and I really feel bad about the effects that our, our country had on Iraq. How can we mitigate that damage at this point? Yes, well, uh, there, there are plenty of things they could have done differently, of course. The, the one thing I'd like to focus on, because it's, it's the, the, perhaps the most important thing, and it's the one that gets um, the least attention uh, in American discussion, is that 
the, uh, the Bush uh, administration could have could have refrained from relying so uh, one-sidedly on, on the exiled elements of the Iraqi opposition, uh, could have dealt more prag pragmatically with the remnants of the old regime. Um, basically, the, uh, the, 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 the big mistakes were committed in the Paul Bremer era uh, by, by adopting the logic that prevailed in the, in the Iraqi exile communities of, of distributing posts on the basis of ethno-sectarian quotas and also of uh, marking such a, a dramatic break with, with, the, with, the, with, very, with the former regime, which after all contained um, hundreds of thousands of very capable civil servants, for example. So those were the basic mistakes um, that were committed back in 2003, 2004, um, but they have become reified and, and, and fortified in the, in the subsequent years, uh, the Obama administration theoretically could have could have um, changed it uh, when they uh, when it took over in in 2009, but it failed to do so. In fact, it it, it went further in this direction of of conceptualizing Iraq as uh, some sort of loose union. Um, governed by the elites of these various ethno-sectarian communities. And, and by doing so, both the Bush administration and the Obama administration have essentially been playing Iran's game in Iraq because uh, it's, it's an Iranian um, official policy to, to maintain these ethno-sectarian identities in politics of Iraq to have uh, a broad Shiite alliance uh, as basis for, for the government because they think that if they have that, the Iraqi government will never become openly hostile to Iran. So, so that is perhaps the most significant mistake that has been committed by, by the Americans and perhaps the one that has received uh, least attention. And I guess in your book, um, you go into in particular detail into the positions of former Senator, now Vice President Joe Biden. And um, I think that's a really important argument that you make in your book, that uh, he in particular, but perhaps the Obama administration more broadly, has been far less willing to entertain the idea and the project of building up an, an Iraqi nationalist capability, but has continued with this sort of... Um, apportionment approach. So uh, I guess we need to wrap up now. Um, we've got all these amazing movements for democracy around the Arab world. Um, has Iraq been a model for them or is it a, is it a sort of a, an object lesson in, in what to avoid in democratization? I think it's the latter. It's, it's, it's something to avoid. It's, it's not a good model at all. Uh, it will be interesting to see uh, how Egypt evolves, how Libya evolves, how, uh, how sectarian uh, identities in the case of Egypt and regional ones in the case of Libya will play out. Hopefully, uh, these, uh, these cases will, will, will show to the Arab world that there are different ways of handling uh, social complexity than, than, than simply... Um, allotting quotas to, to, to political leaders who speak in the name of ethno, 
uh, religious communities. Um, I, I think Iraq is 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 not seen as a model today. Rather, it's seen as um, some sort of residual case, uh, like like Lebanon, of of how uh, you do not want democracy to be in the Middle East. I've been speaking to Raida Vissa, the author of A Responsible End, The United States and the Iraqi Transition, 2005 to 2010. Thank you very much, Raida. And thank you.